Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by Professor John Marini to continue our discussion of the great westerns of John Ford. Our first episode was about The Searchers and the Law of the Family. Our second one was about Liberty Valance and the Rule of Law. And today we're talking about the first John Ford Western that established the Western as a form of art and as a form of reflection on American and human nature. Stagecoach, the 1939 movie that made John Wayne a star, which seems to have been a priority for John Ford, and one of three movies John Ford made that year, along with Young Mr. Lincoln and Drums Along the Mohawk. Sir, thank you for joining me, first of all. You're welcome. And maybe this is the best place to start our conversation with the three movies John Ford made in 1939 and why he did it and what they're supposed to say and to do. Okay. Yeah, I think it's an important year, 1939. I mean, everyone knows who had eyes that the war is going was coming. And not just Ford, but many Hollywood directors began to think seriously about the world and about politics and about society. And Ford, I think, had a conscious plan or an instinctive way of trying to understand the situation as it revealed itself in America, because he was an American. It's very clear that these three movies, I think, set the stage for the rest of his life. He saw the possibilities inherent in the understanding of history that would make it possible to reveal the qualities that are necessary to sustain a way of life that is established on the foundation of these principles that America had established its republic on, equality and liberty. The understanding derived really from nature and natural right and from an understanding of human nature. So in those three movies, First, he did Drums Along the Mohawk, which is really a commentary on the beginnings of a regime. Uh, took place in the revolutionary period, but primarily reflected the way in which the Americans were confronted with Indians on the frontier who were fighting and used by the British. So there were many ways in which you could understand what he was doing, both from the point of view of revolution, but also from the point of view of an understanding of nature that is not quite the same as the understanding that the Indians had of nature and freedom. I'll go to the young Mr. Lincoln as a way of looking at this problem at a later date and from a different perspective of having founded the regime. It was successful in some ways, but it was at a crisis, and Ford wanted to reveal some of the qualities of character necessary to deal with the kind of crisis that was not yet evident in the young Mr. Lincoln, but was evident in the character of Lincoln that would make it possible for him to confront and to deal with the crisis that he would face later. Now, when he made the young Mr. Lincoln, he asked Henry Fonda to play Lincoln. And Henry Fonda was very reluctant. He didn't want to do it. He said, I can't play Lincoln. That's like playing Jesus Christ. And uh, Ford said to him, look, this isn't the great Lincoln, the emancipator. This is the jackboot lawyer. You know, he's just a young kid. And of course, he eventually got Fonda to do it. But you can see the way he ends that movie. When Lincoln is climbing up that hill, the very last scene in the movie, and it's raining and thundering, it, it, a bright daylight, uh, kind of the clouds part, daylight comes and it goes to the Lincoln Memorial. So it's very clear that Ford wanted to connect this to what Lincoln had become in legend and in fact, really. And then finally, he does Stagecoach, which was, in some ways, the simplest of the presentations of what he is getting to, but at the same time, in some ways, the most profound trying to deal with this as a human problem that reveals itself in its kind of universality. Stagecoach is so deceptively simple that it's hard to realize how profound it is in the way in which he analyzes these characters when he takes them out of civil society and puts them back into the state of nature on a stagecoach. And in this, he establishes the archetypes looking to see the vices and virtues that are established on the foundation of the desires. Of course, in reality, human beings exercise these desires leads to either blessings or curses in the way in which these passions reveal themselves. 
all of the characters embody some fundamental desire or passion that's necessary for human life, but also provides the occasion for whether that passion is going to be a virtue or a vice. Now, you have to understand this in terms of the way Ford is putting that into a different context when they get into a stagecoach. Because in a certain way, civil society and civilization require laws and social conventions. And those become very rigid. They become strict. And those reveal, and they're necessary to encourage the virtues, but still, nature itself creates desires in individuals for the things that go beyond those limits. Those things that had been necessary to establish a common good in society and are enforced by laws and conventions and whatever social customs in individuals, these natural desires, include the things that provide the occasions for vices and virtues. So if we looked at those things that Ford is looking at in these characters, you could say first character, roughly the order in which they're on the stagecoach, we look at Dallas, who's a prostitute. But what we see in the characterization of a prostitute is how sex comes to be viewed conventionally. In the character of the banker Ellsworth, we look at money, which is in itself a good, but understood in the way Ellsworth comes to understand it. And he's, remember, the epitome of conventionally good, respectability, the banker. He's embezzling money. So money is, for him, going to be a curse. In the case of Hatfield, another potential thing that seems to be almost intrinsic in human life, gambling, how that reveals itself and how the John Carradine character, how the war and how his status as a kind of an aristocrat in that South is shattered by the defeat of that way of life by the northern armies and he doesn't look too kindly on Abraham Lincoln. And then you have, of course, Peacock, who's the whiskey drummer. Whiskey and, and alcohol is also another thing that is potentially a good, a blessing, but also used immoderately can be a curse. Now, Peacock, he's portrayed and he's misunderstood oftentimes as a reverend. Several times both the doc and Marshall called him reverend, but he is the meekest of men. Doc Boone, the Thomas Mitchell character, who is in some ways the most sophisticated of the passengers and the most educated, he's a medical doctor, and the most concerned with the human good of health, is also in a way crippled by alcohol that Peacock has at his disposal. And when Doc Boone meets Peacock and Peacock wants to get off of the stagecoach because it's endangered. He's got a family, and he's got five kids. And you can see what Doc Boone says about him. Well, you're a man in respect to children. You could see that later. The only time he asserts his authority, after the baby is born, when he's looking out for the interest of that baby against anybody who's trying to make a noise or do something, you notice he asserts himself. So what Boone is saying about Peacock is, you're a man, you got to stay. But his manliness is simply in the most natural form of being able to father children. Lucy Mallory is able to be a mother of children, and she's doing it in a respectable way. She's married. And of course, all of the social prejudices that go with the way in which sex has to be understood are on her side. And of course, that makes her look down on someone like Dallas, who has used or has in some ways tainted the fair sex by the way in which she's become promiscuous in the use of sex. Bach, the Andy Devine character, the stage driver, is also a father and has many children. He's married to Julieta. Remember, Julieta is also his wife in The Man Who Shot Liberty Vow. Yep. So, 23 uh, years later, it's the same actor, Divine, right, the playing same the same actor. kind of character, yeah. a coward, but uh, a family man. Yeah, but a family with man with a, with a and family out for his in Arizona. Family, I mean. It's worth noting that both the whiskey drummer and the stagecoach driver, Peacock and Buck, the only two fathers, are cowards. And although they are not without a certain degree of bravery when it counts, they are played for laughs for the most part. The authority of the father is somehow connected with the tragic part of life, and the fathers who are prosperous, as you say, they're not authoritative in any sense. 
Yeah, and there's every indication that his family prospers, even in Liberty Valance. His family is educated, he takes him to school, and they're well-behaved in the whole work. Yes. Then you have the marshal, and of course, marshal is the guy concerned with law. But as Ford shows when trying to distinguish nature and convention, law is not the same as justice. And of course, Ford is using these vices and virtues in a way to draw what is necessary to provide an accommodation between these. In other words, he's looking at how to establish moderation. And you'll see that every one of these characters is moderated in a certain way, either toward being more sympathetic to convention or being more understanding of nature. And the Ringo Kid is the typical, naturally good character, who's untainted even by his experience in prison. He's a family man, but he can't really get beyond that. But he's naturally good, and he's not embittered by his experience, and he's capable of accepting whatever the law does. But in his view, justice has to be understood naturally. And if somebody kills his family, he's got to kill them. <laughs> the character of Ringo is crucial to the film. Because it establishes a way of showing natural goodness. And that natural goodness of Dallas, too, is revealed in the course of the movie. Even though the social prejudice against them have made them appear to be pariahs, as if they are outside the order of the human world, they turn out to be, in many ways, the most human and the most humane of the characters on the stagecoach. Yep. And when there's a spark between the two, Dallas and Ringo, that spark is established because Ringo is oblivious of her social sins. It doesn't seem to bother him. He doesn't understand. There's a kind of innocence. He understands only her predicament. And her predicament is that her family was killed by Indians when she was a kid. She essentially had to make her way in the world by herself. Yes. And what he wants for her, of course, is to have a life and to have a family. And in some ways, her motherly instincts are better than the woman who's the ideal mother from a social point of view. Mrs. Mallard. Yeah. She takes care of the babe. She is the one who decides, even at the expense of her own happiness, because Ringo says, let's go, let's go to our ranch and go away. And she says, I can't do that. I have to take care of the baby. And Mrs. Mallory, until Lordsburg. The characters that are a part of this journey back through the state of nature and the reestablishing community on different lines, on lines that those conventions do not establish how it is that we think about each other. It's very clear that the way in which every one of these characters is viewed is transformed. Doc, who was despised by Hatfield, by the time they get on the last leg of the... He saw that Doc actually was a Doc. Well, he really had some despicable names for him when he thought he couldn't save or wouldn't help save the Mrs. Child. Mallory. Yeah, and the child. When you look at how Curly looks at both Ringo and Dallas by the end of the movie, you see that he comes to have a greater appreciation for justice than he does for the law. Yes. And, of course, he lets them go. And so, in a way, I think you could go deeply into this just by looking at certain elements of the movie. I'm just looking at it in a most kind of superficial way. But, of course, that's what we always do, right? We start with the surface and we pay as much yeah, attention as yeah. possible. That is the Straussian way. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you, and I think this is the way to start thinking about this. Now, a few things. First of all, as we were saying about the movies of 1939... The three movies move forward in time a hundred years and westward throughout America. Drums Along the Mohawk is in the Valley of the Mohawk River in western New York State in the 1770s. Then you have Young Mr. Lincoln in Illinois in the 1840s. And then you move even further west to Arizona in the 1880s and you get to Stagecoach. So there's a lot of American history covered there and a lot of yeah. the fundamental conflicts, the revolution and the civil war above all, but also Western freedom and how society would be refounded each time Americans would have to form new communities as they moved out west. The West, that way, becomes the defining form of American freedom because it's the last frontier, it's the last new founding. 
here you see that there's a lot of trouble actually you would have thought yeah. after yeah. the civil war the union won the principles of liberty and equality and recognizing human dignity have been vindicated and that they're working out in practice slower or faster but coming along but instead you see this society that actually has a lot of problems the distinction sure. between nature and convention is as serious and obvious as ever, precisely because, as you put it, convention elevates some people, including by giving the force of law to their vices, to use the law to punish others or exploit them, and other people who are naturally good are, on the other hand, exploited in this way and do not have their human dignity recognized. So you're right, the poetic I, I intention think... is to moderate the excesses of America. Some people are too high and have to be brought low because in their pride they've turned criminal, and some people are too low and need to be brought up somewhat. They need to have their own human dignity and goodness proved and recognized. And in that well, sense, I, the stagecoach is America on the road. These but people are see... forced together, but maybe they don't have any common purpose. That's part of the question there. Do they but really have here... anything in common? Yeah, that's the problem. But I think what you see in Stagecoach here is you're right. Those first two are much more clearly historical, tied to a concrete situation. What Ford is doing as stagecoach is to see the philosophic possibilities in a Western that transcend history. These are human questions. Yes. And can be understood in all human societies at any time. That's why in some ways the Western is much more philosophic than any other form for him. Because he can deal with these very simple questions. But every human has these desires. You would have no human beings without sex. You would have no pleasures in life without some of the other things that provide occasions for vice. But then yes. the question is, how do you moderate those things in a way that's useful to the common good? In the stagecoach, the common good is revealed as a necessity. Not what a common good is. The common good, philosophically. Yeah. A common good is going to depend upon the circumstance that you're able to, in a matter of just a few days on a stagecoach, reveal this in the way in which Ford does, shows you only in a very brief way how to think about these problems. Every one of these is uh, capable of being expanded into a fundamental problem of hundreds of books. <laughs> sure, yeah, and that's part of the power of the movie. It succeeds so much because it shows fundamental things and uh, runs a plot through them so that you know where you're going, but at the same time, you see that these things are all of them more ambiguous and more complicated, and the more you pay attention to detail, the more you see the clues he puts there to guide along more serious thinking. And I would say that he insists on the questions of injustice and social prejudice precisely because they allow him to bring up the question of human nature as opposed to law, and there is something in the story that is straightforwardly anti-progressive. The movie starts with two characters, a whore and a drunken doctor, who are run out of town by the ladies of the Law and Order League. This would be turn-of-the-century feminism, which had many virtues. I'm not running it down. But it was also the form in which progressive conventions appeared there. And the movie shows that both the whore and the drunken doctor have in fact something of nobility and a lot of goodness in them and could participate in a common good if they were not treated the way they had been treated in that town that eventually kicks them out. They're on the stagecoach without any choice. They've just been kicked out. And the question for them is, can they find any place in America for themselves? Some of the other characters have a choice about being on that stagecoach, some of them don't, but all of them end up stuck together, and therefore, of course, the common good shows up primarily as survival, surviving the trip and surviving the Indian attack. A common enemy is really the only thing they have in common. When they are under attack, they cooperate, but that doesn't last so long. At the end, social no. conventions reassert themselves, and the respectable woman who might owe her life to the whore has to abandon her. And there you see that it's not possible yeah. for society to do perfect justice. But, no, but Ford no. shows it's... us through a drama where he brings out our emotions and passions in the service of this conflict about virtue and vice, asking us to judge these characters. He shows us that in our hearts we know better, that in our hearts oh, yeah. we are not I mean, that's the purpose of the movie. social conventions. It, it, right. I think the purpose of the movie is to reveal 
the problems in a way that they become intelligible when you think about them in precisely the way in which you're talking about. Once you see what the options are and what the conditions were and what the choices that were made, some of them willingly and some of them unwillingly, then you have a better idea of what the human condition is and what kind of restraints are imposed by necessity. And society has to take the side of virtue. But that doesn't mean that you get rid of hypocrisy. Yes. <laughs> you know, everything that society and laws and social conventions tries to do is give those who need respectability in the law something that they're able to abide by. Now, when they can abide by it, society can't take the side of those who disobey. Those who go beyond the restraints or limits are required for social life and the kind of common good. But that doesn't mean that you get rid of any problem that exists in society. All it does is it obscures them. Yes. That's why the Western for Ford becomes crucial. Notice what he does. He goes to the war and fights in the war. He makes one movie at, toward the end of the war, which is They Were Expendable. And that was a movie that was made when the war was won about what America would look like when it was losing the war, when it lost the great battle. But then when the war is over, all of the movies that he does in the late 40s, beginning with My Darling Clementine, Fort Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, all of those were westerns. And every one of them reveals some aspect of the things that is already revealed in the stage Yes. He may probe something in a more fundamental way, you know, the necessity, say, for security, of law and order, of military life, all of those things. All of those extraordinary things that bring forth extraordinary effort from common people. That's what Ford is looking for always. These are common people, but their status can never be the same. Dallas can never be the same as an outsider. But the quality of her character, if it can be revealed, can show attributes greater than some of those who are conventionally yeah. respectable. What I see in Stagecoach is Ford's recognition that this is something that can be understood at the level of poetry, as we talked about poetry is higher than history yes. in the way in which it is established by a thinker or an artist like Ford who understands in some depth the human situation. And he does it because he does have still the older understanding of nature of an America that was established before history and historicism dominated how we came to understand the past. We turned the past into something that was not a good for America. The historians did. But Ford's use of history is always a good for America. It's always understood in an edifying way. History is not a poison for Ford. History is a way of celebrating human greatness to make it worth caring about. People cannot love a regime that is not worthy of being loved. To destroy a regime by poisoning the roots of it is just as effective as destroying it on the battlefield. Yes, that's very well put. And it's so important that the Western arose around just before and then just after the Second World War, which was a test of America against competing claims about how life should be organized that were all about saying a new discovery is made and things have to be transformed in the direction of a horrifying tyranny. And Americans had to defend themselves, not just with arms, but also with principles and also with poetry, of course, to explain why the American way is reasonable and is a better fit for human nature than any of the other powers that yeah, had to be, be contended against. Why Ford thought of John Wayne is fundamental to this movement. It took Ford a long time to get the funding for this thing. And when he went to Walter Wanger, who was the guy who was going to produce it, he didn't want John Wayne, who was a B actor. He'd spent the whole decade of the 30s in B movies. He, had, he was not a new face in Hollywood. He made 80 movies in the 30s yes. after he made The Big Trail in 1930, which was a high-budget film that failed. And then Wayne was consigned, really, to B westerns. But Ford insisted. Now, when Ford asked Wayne to read this script, he said, well, who do you think should play this role? Because, you know, there was Gary Cooper who was going to turn it down. I think Tyrone Power, Joel McRae. Yeah, and Wayne says, well, how about Lloyd Nolan? That's who he suggested could do it. 
Ford, of course, subsequently comes back and says, how about you doing? And Wayne thought he was just kind of joking. But then Ford was very realistic. When Ford was making this film, you get the idea as to why he wanted this guy to be the embodiment of the manly, heroic character that he was creating. He said to one of the actresses, Louise Platt, Mrs. Mallory, that he will be the biggest star ever because he's the perfect everyman. Now, he harassed Wayne on the film. He was nasty to him. And you can see he did it to a purpose because what it did is it brought the cast together. All of the other actors were sympathizing with Wayne because of the way Ford treated him. And Ford used to use that technique a lot. Yes. He would focus on and browbeat and make fun of or do whatever it is to a character that he wanted a certain kind of response. And whatever he did, this performance of Wayne's was pretty spectacular. I think it's probably as important as The Searchers and certainly for his career. Because yes. if he had not been able to live up to what it was that Ford was grooming him for. Now, Ford did a masterful job, really, of representing John Wayne. In that scene where he reintroduces him to the American public, that is fantastic. The way in which he films that, the easygoing innocence and character of Ringo is revealed where he's got a saddle on one hand, he's twirling his rifle. On the other hand, you know, that was so hard to do that they had to cut the barrel down so he could get it under his arm when he was swinging it. This shot was well thought out in terms of what Ford knew he needed to do to make Ringo, yep. to make Wayne. Everything there, the, the focus, the rushing camera movement. When he uh, focuses in on Wayne, you notice it's blurred for a moment, and then there's clarity. Mm -hmm. As you see the face and the eyes, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a tremendous thing. And look, it succeeded. <laughs> it obviously succeeded. He made John Wayne into something extraordinary, not only for America, but in terms of the way the world came to look at John Wayne. And I think John Wayne at America, right? He was, yeah, in important as... ways, the look of American prestige and of the American character. Not just power or being a big, strong guy, but also his character. No, a certain no, essential sense embodied, of fairness yeah, and freedom. But also the leaders in the rest of the world. They saw something in John Wayne in America that they thought was threatening. As Khrushchev said when he met John Wayne in 1959, Khrushchev wanted to meet him, that both Stalin and Mao wanted to have him killed. Yep. And when Brezhnev comes to America and visits Nixon in San Clemente, the person he wants to see is John Wayne. And I think John Wayne does give him a shotgun as a souvenir from that meeting. <laughs> So, I mean, it's amazing, the perceptions. When you have a media that's so powerful as we do now, this movie medium, it's not easy to detect other things other than how they're portrayed. Whether somebody truly has character or not, you can't tell by the media. And, of course, John Ford realized what a powerful thing movies had become and that it allowed poetry to compete again in the most serious ways with any other way of thinking or any other opinion that people might hold. He was not shy about creating this mythological past for America, the West, because he knew that so long as Americans would recognize characters that are plausibly American and yet interesting, they would be with you all the way. Americans were looking for a John Wayne star. Other people maybe didn't notice it, but John Ford noticed it, and he, as you say, proved it. He proved the point. In the age of the newspaper and of the scientific study and of the expert administrative government, what people were looking for at the same time was understanding heroism and trying to get a picture of completeness of human life and action where they could judge right and wrong, where they could think about justice and injustice, nobility and ignobility, and of course about the virtues and the vices and the passions that are yeah. constitutive to human nature, as you were saying before. And this is something that is unique to poetry and in our age I suppose it's the movies and now computer games where this is possible. Uh, you and I are uh, cursed with the plight of the academic but intellectuals don't change popular opinion and they cannot speak to people's deepest convictions in any persuasive ways. And on the other hand politicians are incredibly temporary, incredibly perishable. They have a very short shelf life in America. Whereas somebody like John Wayne could be a celebrity and a star and make impressive movies for more than 30 years. No politician has that kind of attention span publicly in America.
So it yeah, was right. really a unique achievement and a unique opportunity. And John Ford with John Wayne in the Western was the man who seized it, unlike any other Hollywood director or indeed any other director. Well, also, I think what Ford saw in this beginning to, to reflect upon and reflected upon it even differently after the war was the question of civilization itself. Because you could see by the end of the 30s that Western civilization some of the things that were happening in European and Western civilization, the decline of the West, all of these things made it possible for him to reflect on civilization in a way that was, again, somewhat philosophic, not necessarily pessimistic, but realistic about what civilization is. And you can see that even in Stagecoach already, because civilization requires those things that establish the necessity of family, laws, conventions, all of those kinds of things create the conditions that obscure the possibility of understanding those virtues and vices, because those don't depend simply on those things that were created to sustain it, laws, social conventions, etc. At the end of Stagecoach, when Doc says Ringo and Dallas are saved from the blessings of civilization, he is actually essentially showing that civilization itself needs a defense too. Not a defense simply that is historical. And when you look at the movies after the war, like Searchers, there you see he engages that in a much deeper and more philosophic way. What civilization is in the character of Ethan Edwards that John Wayne plays in a very different way. Think about John Wayne as Ringo and then Ethan Edwards in Searchers. So all of these are questions that are open, and I would say the reason they're philosophic is because they're permanent human questions. We may obscure the necessity of having to deal with these things, but they're there. All we do is become oblivious. Yeah, as we've discussed before, the 30s were such a catastrophe for the illusions of progress, both economically and socially, and of course politically, at the level of a threatened end of civilization, a world war, that it became possible again for a poet to say seriously that he understands human nature better than all the supposed intellectuals and scientists, that he can speak meaningfully about freedom and tyranny, about the difference between law and justice, and that he can have an access to nature and how to judge things in light of that that is lacking in the conventional account. In a sense, he wanted to liberate the intellect well, from could, conventions. You could say that Ford was saved from the blessings of a modern education. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well put. <laughs> and of course, he, he did his best to help his fellow Americans enjoy the oh, same yeah. benefits, to be able through dramatization and through the stories of heroes to figure out right and wrong in a way that oh, yeah. speaks to our emotions and at the same time engages our judgment because we have to pay attention to what's happening, understand the details, have an intuition well, of the character and the human type, and in a sense confess the truth, whether we really sympathize with these people, even though they're not conventionally admirable. And that yeah, shows, of course, that there is something permanent to human questions and that it shows up in us spontaneously, at least if there is a poet able enough to speak to us. Yeah, and you could see that after Ford established this in the popular culture of Hollywood at that time and probably the country at that time, was very receptive to perpetuating and recreating these virtues in the popular way. Look at television in the first several decades. All the Western shows, whether it was shows that drew directly off of Ford's movies like Wagon Train, which comes out of Wagon Master, every one of these Western shows was about the morality that requires addressing these questions, these moral questions. Then I think we should turn to the fate of these characters. As you said, the story tries its best to moderate the passions that have led these characters into their crisis, because there are certain crises that are revealed uh, in the necessity of survival on this stagecoach. It is a transformative experience for almost every one of these characters, mm -hmm. and they don't all end up the same way. The two unconventional characters, the two people the city has no use for, the Ringo kid and the Dallas, the prostitute, they end up getting married and make for the border for his ranch where they will be living free of the blessings of civilization. And that suggests they can't be reintegrated in the city, really. 
no, they will right. be living yeah, out the convention kind of... of marriage, right. but they have mm-hmm. to do it away. They can be well, free that way, but they couldn't be free in the city. And that, of course, has to do with a certain problem of justice. The Ringo kid has to kill the people who killed his father and brother. The law can't allow that because you can't have people taking their family vendettas and leading to catastrophe. In the little town of Lordsburg, some of this has already happened. We find out throughout the movie not just that the Ringo kid was set up and sent to jail, but also that his father and brother were murdered and then that his friends were driven out of town by the rival faction, the plumber boys. And it is precisely because the law is powerless to do anything about these kids. When you get rid of one, his two brothers will come and murder you. That they need the Ringo kid. They might not know it. Not even Curly, the marshal, realizes it up until the very moment. But then he does realize that that's the only option you have. A more procedural, more publicly accountable and respectful of the civil peace form of justice is not possible yet. It has to be established, and at the establishment, you have to wipe out the idea that you could rule a town by a family and terror, like the plumber boys are doing. Ringo and Dallas are able to go off, in a sense, back to a state of nature, because they were tested in civil society, and their natures were revealed, and they were good. Yes, that's a very important point. The whiskey drummer, the traveling salesman, whom everybody calls Reverend, He's the only one who calls Dallas a lady and who says that if she's ever in Kansas City, he would be happy to host her. He's no, that's the only right. respectable that's person who uh, shows that he knows now that she too is a good human being, whatever conventional people might think. She may have saved a wife and child. She was the indispensable oh, yeah, nurse at so. that birth. The event is smack in the middle of the movie. There is this birth of a child. There's hope right. for the future there. And that reveals the motherly aspirations and virtues of Dallas and appeals to this character's better nature to think somewhat more charitably, more kindly of each other. And our yeah. whiskey drama really is a kind of reverend. He talks about Christian yeah. charity at one point or another and calls everybody brother, a mm. very Quaker no, he, thing to do, let's say. Right, right, right. So no, and he, he it's, does it's, speak for a certain meek respectability that well, he is yeah. willing to include other people in the society. But as you said, it's still the case that they have to retire, that they have to withdraw into the state of nature, because the law just can't accommodate them, because the laws aren't perfect. Right. The Peacock character, of course, is what most people are in civil society. They don't have to exert their spiritedness. The law provides for the kind of security they require, and he's a good family man. The only person who has to be dealt with by the law is Gatewood. Yes, and that's because he is a criminal who hides behind the laws and behind his social prestige. He heaps contempt on other people in lower social classes, but he uses the system to hide his own crimes as he robs people of their money. You are right to say that only the banker, Gatewood, has to be dealt with by the law, but of course there is another character that cannot have a future in modern America, and that is the southern aristocrat turned gambler, Hatfield. He is a man of distinction and manners, and he is not without a certain nobility, but in a shocking turn late in the movie, he proves intolerably fatalistic and almost criminal. His purpose, self-appointed in the journey, is to protect Mrs. Mallory, the wife of the soldier who, pregnant, is daring the wilderness to be with her husband. It turns out that they are both southerners from Virginia and of good family, although obviously they live very different lives. She has married into the military that is loyal to the Union against which he has fought. Hatfield still carries his regimental-issued flask from which he offers drinks of water on the stagecoach. He reserves, however, the silver chalice for himself and Mrs. Mallory. And in the end, he lets us know that he is the son of a certain Mr. Greenwood who has an estate in Virginia. He apparently has abandoned his family because he cannot live in the new order. His dying words are, tell Mr. Greenwood that his son, and then he expires. He is happily killed by Indians right at the moment when he is trying to murder Mrs. Mallory, as he thinks, to save her from rape and a worse fate than death at the hands of the Indians, 
who are about to overwhelm the stagecoach. That is the instance of fatalism that so shockingly shows that this character cannot be moderated in any way, not even by the birth of a child to a woman he so admires. And so that means, of course, that's the end, really. His life was to protect her, who was still a gentle woman in his mind, but he could never perpetuate that way of life. And so he is killed. He's the only one that really dies. The whiskey drummer is wounded. The arrow is taken out. And, and the reason why I like Ford is if you figure him out, he makes sense. There's yes. nothing that you would want to say. for that... a reason. <laughs> right. Exactly. Hatfield is a very interesting character. He's the southerner, the confederate, the aristocrat. He dresses in a very expensive way. He has the aristocratic mustachios and a silver cup. And he is also a gunslinger who shoots people in the back. And he's also a gambler. Now, gambling is in a sense aristocratic and un-American because it means you can throw money away. You don't think that earning money is that important if you can waste it that way or win it without earning through chance. That's an aristocratic attitude. But at the same time, Hatfield has an incredibly dark other half. He is also nihilistic. And although he fights bravely, when they are under attack by the Indians, and Ford shoots it clearly to show that he's the only one who enjoys the fighting. He's smiling, he's clearly excited about all the killing and the dying happening. But then, when he realizes they've run out of ammo, and he fears the worst, he Mm. despairs, and he saves one bullet to kill the gentlewoman so that she will not be taken by the Indians. And happily, he is dispatched by those Indians just in time to save the new mother's life. And there you see the darkness that comes in this kind of otherwise honorable man when he thinks there's no future left. You know, when they lost the respect of what they perceived the regime was, the defenders of the Southern cause, just think of all the great outlaws in the post-Civil War era. Jesse James, the Cole Youngers, how many of those people were fighting and trying to despoil the regime because of their revenge against the loss in the war? Yeah, it's a very good point. And so they didn't want to, you know, they couldn't be reincorporated back into a civil society as fellow citizens. I once read Cole Younger's, Cole Younger was in the Northfield, Minnesota raid with the James brothers, and he got caught and he spent the next 30 years in federal prison in Northfield. He wrote his memoirs, and I think he's in the 1890s, and it begins with this, everything after the Civil War was a blur. The whole of his life, it was all animated by, that's what defeat really does in a certain way when you experience it the way they did. Yes. And you, you can see that he was a gentleman, Hatfield, but everything that was gentlemanly about him had turned to vice. Yes. So, yeah, all of that, I think, is implicit in the way in which he presents this. And just the opposite side of that, of course, is the reverence that Doc Boone has for the North and Lincoln. So, yeah, and it's all here. Doc Boone is the only other who fought in the Civil War. He fought mm-hmm. on the northern side, and he is proud of Lincoln, and he is proud of himself for having done it, for having no, done right. his That's duty the and high his point life. For him. Yeah. Exactly. But when you first see him, his landlady throws him out because he can't pay his rent, right. and right. the ladies of the Law and Order League want nothing to do with him. They kick him out of town is a veteran who has not done well in post-Civil War America. And you can see that compared to the glory of the righteous cause vindicated in the Civil War, the letdown must have driven him to drink. Doc Boone is supposed to be an agent of enlightenment. He gives Americans health, the science of medicine, progress, life. But he's also a romantic. He has a poetic side. He misquotes, but he does quote Christopher Marlowe. And of course, he comes. Exactly. And he also suggests jokingly that the women of the Law and Order League are the sans-culottes of Paris of the revolution. Mm. And that he himself and the whore are the aristocrats who are going to be taken to the guillotine. Instead of being the high-born, they're the low-born. But they Mm. are treated in the same way. And it turns out he's right, ironically. It is the case that they have a high nobility that those moralistic women do not have. 
it is them too who save a respectable woman and her child's life. They are the doctor and the nurse in the moment of need. That's one of the great egalitarian moments in John 4 that again suggests moderation. Society has treated them lower than they deserve and so they are brought somewhat higher. And society has treated other people wrongly by giving them too much, exalting them too high and they have to be brought down. Especially the banker who is a criminal stealing people's money and therefore their property and their jobs and their livelihood which is intolerable of course in America. Your money is so much tied up with your life that it is part of your dignity. It's not just stealing. And Doc Boone, at the end, risks his life needlessly. Not just in fighting against the Indians, but in staring down a murderer. Yeah, a plumber. Yeah. Exactly. That, again, gives him his honor back. Shows no, that, that he that... does have this capacity to do his job and to be vindicated as a doctor. And he does yeah. say when he meets the Ringo kid and it turns out he once fixed his brother's hand, those professional yeah. compliments are always appreciated. Because right. they show you're good for something, that you did something well that is good for other people. Then and even the way... the baby, people finally respect him. This is part of Ford's narrative of redemption. A lot of these characters need to see that in the eyes of their fellow Americans, they are redeemed. Doc Boone, Dallas, of course, the Ringo Kid as well. Yeah. Well, even the last line of the movie, we're talking about moderation. Now, Ford has a great sense of humor, but if all of the things you're talking about resonate in the character of Doc Boone, and Doc Boone is capable of transcending the things that had become vices in his life, the very last line shows that he has understood or ford has understood the necessity of moderation when the marshal says i'll buy you a drink and he says the very last words just one yeah he now has a better chance to take control oh, of, of course, himself of precisely no because question. he has faced death he has brought life into the world these are the kinds of experiences that can give him a grasp on human dignity so that he can take care of himself. And this and is also supposed he... to heal something in his own mind. He is not only educated right. for poetry or for science, he also calls himself a philosopher, the only man in the movie right. to do so. But he's a stoic fatalist. He says, one day the wrong bottle or the right bullet will come for me. And <laughs> who am I to worry about Well, that's it? right. He needs this yeah. experience to see that good things are possible even beyond conventions and that but there also, is a natural future for mankind. Also, it'd be helpful for him if he found a good community as well, where he could use his skills and his understanding in a certain way. And those temptations, those curses that often are the uh, opposite side of a blessing, they will be used in a different way as well. So what Ford shows always in his movies is the human dilemma is always there if there's such a thing as human nature. It changes in the environments in which you find yourselves politically, socially, civilizationally. I mean, at a tribe, you don't have the same kinds of problems as you have. In a civilized community, you don't have the same kinds of problems you have in a large nation state. But every one of them is reflective of these simple things. Yes. The very simple things that he starts from. And, of course, as you put it, there's a kind of chance for a better town now. Stagecoach starts sure, in one sure. town, which apparently is not irredeemable, but it's not good enough for this particular problem and for these people who have been treated badly. But by the end, there is a certain improvement. Doc Boone has a new shot at practicing mm -hmm. and uh, confidence, but it's not just that. The crisis at the center of the movie and the making of a marriage and the giving of a life lead into this town to a new birth of justice. The Ringo kid destroys the plumber boys who have been wreaking havoc in this town. And instead, well, you know the stagecoach also brings them a doctor. And the wife of the soldier, Mrs. Mallory, she also comes there with a child and perhaps a better understanding that she shouldn't condemn by social prejudice. Well, you and know what the town, what Tonto means in Spanish? Stupid, or yes. silly, or backward, or mindless. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, uh, and every name, Ford almost always has the importance yeah. of names. And the city they end uh, up in is called Lordsburg. Mm. It is the Lord's Town. <laughs> in a certain no, sense. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are certain lessons learned 
there are certain risks taken and certain virtues proved, exercised, and this gives people their sense of dignity, their self-understanding, and they move them from a worse town to a better town, and they right. show a better possibility for America. But, you know, I think when you look at Ford's movies, and particularly his westerns, the reason why they're capable of being appreciated, not just by Americans, is because they get to the heart of the human problems that all humans experience, not at the same time. I mean, you know, you've got people in countries that have been around for a thousand years or two thousand years. But at one point, these problems were like this. Yes. And they might be kind of like this again. Look at the end of World War II. How many millions of people were completely homeless at the end of the war? Completely displaced. Yes. Back in a different world. So, I mean, you know, we don't even have the ability among our intellectuals to try to make sense of these problems anymore. I mean, a guy like Ford, who's an artist and a poet, he makes better sense of these kinds of questions than all of the social scientists that try to study these things in a scientific way. Yeah, he offers certain forms of counsel in the Western that for America to stay America, it should remember the West. It should remember the conflict between civilization and nature because those historical situations aren't the historical situations we have now, but the character and the questions of human dignity that are expressed through virtues and vices and that raise political problems, the questions haven't themselves changed. And no. we're still able to learn from them it would take a certain prudence to see what the relationship between those things then and these things now is. It's always difficult to dramatize fundamental things through particular historical situations, but he shows that it is possible and that audiences respond to it and therefore that people could learn. Yeah, and I think you still get directors who try to do this in another medium, whether it's in science fiction or taking a phenomenon that you can best reveal these kinds of problems, even if they don't know how to think about them very well. And that's exactly why we need poetry. There well, of is course, our and, chance and that's... to escape from conventions and for a more thoughtful <laughs> way of engaging with human things. And so, sir, thank you for doing this with me. We already have three of these conversations out there for people to learn more about the Western, about America, and about human nature as such. And perhaps we should talk about My Darling Clementine next. All right, that sounds good. I know that one a little better. Perfect. Then that should okay. be our next episode. Thanks a lot, sir. All right. All okay. the best. We'll see you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts. Wherever you're looking for your podcasts, we're there. Please take the time to give us a review and a rating on iTunes and to share our podcast so that we can reach a broader audience. Until next time.